Uh, we've been going through the book of Galatians lately, and so we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. And this is, this is a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And I, I keep thinking about this. What if, what if Paul was still writing letters today? Would the church in America be getting a letter? And what would that letter look like? See, most of Paul's letters were full of correction and guidance on living out the Christian life as God desires of us. So I wonder what the letter to the church in America, the letter to us, would look like. So, because what is the modern church known for? Are we known for our busyness? Are we known for maybe some uh, superstar pastor or a massive building project? Are we known for what we're against? Or do our neighbors, our family, our friends know us for our love for one another? Do they know us as the, the guy who gets angry all the time? Or the woman who gossips to everyone? Or the thief? Or the cheat? Or the hypocrite? You know, that's always the excuse given for people that don't want to go to church. Well, the church is full of hypocrites, to which I kind of want to say every now and then, yeah, but I, I see you're on Facebook and Instagram all the time, and uh, Facebook and Instagram is not full of hypocrites either. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, today in chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul is building upon his last point to not carry out the acts of the flesh, but rather how we as Christians should be led by the Spirit. And here in chapter 6, he starts out with a common scenario that uh, might pop up in a church of coming along someone who is caught in a sin with the goal of restoration in mind. So if you join me in verse 1 as we read, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. See, Paul starts out, if someone is caught in a sin, if someone has fallen into some sort of transgression or is caught fulfilling one of the works of the flesh that we studied about last week, then Paul says, you who live by the Spirit, you who are led by the Spirit, should restore that person gently. But watch out so you don't become tempted as well. The idea of being caught in a sin that Paul is talking about here is, doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I got caught doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is the idea of if we're running from a predator, and sin is that predator. We're running, and that predator's faster than us, and it overtakes us, and it eventually catches us. This is what happens when we give in to temptation and evil desires. We allow ourselves to be caught in sin, and we're all susceptible to it. And Paul is saying, since we're all susceptible to being tempted, watch yourselves. Since we're all susceptible and vulnerable to being caught in a sin, watch yourselves and restore that person as you would want to be restored. Building upon this, Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, meaning temptations are always chasing us. Satan is always looking to devour us. And we are not invisible. We are not invincible. 
to this, each and every one of us could be tempted and could be caught in a sin at any moment. Every temptation, every evil desire that pops into our mind is like a predator chasing us, seeking to make us its next meal. And when we find ourselves caught in a sin, wouldn't we want to be restored with gentleness? The goal is restored fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. That's the goal in mind. Okay? So Paul says the one who is caught in a sin must be rehabilitated in gentleness by a spirit-led brother or sister. Meaning, we must not be made to feel condemned or treated like an outcast, but restored gently, restored to fellowship. But this isn't how it normally happens, is it? It's been said before that my sin looks so much worse on all of you. Meaning that we are less harsh on our own selves than we are on others who struggle with maybe the same thing we struggle with. Because we don't like the things we struggle with, but if we see somebody else, oh, you're worse than me, right? We, we tend to do that. But Paul says, restore such a one. But that takes work, doesn't it? It takes patience, gentleness. Wait a minute. It takes the fruit of the Spirit. So thus, a Spirit-led person. But all too often, we ostracize people because it's easier than actually working to restore them. What should this look like? I kind of wish we had an example. Well, we, we do. Jesus. John in chapter 8, we read that one day while in the temple, as Jesus was preparing to teach, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and Jesus said, and, to, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest one first, until Jesus, only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. The teachers of the law were ready to condemn this woman for her actions. Yes, there's something foul about this whole situation because... Where's the guy? He's guilty too. He should be standing there too. But that aside, they wanted to immediately stone her, and the law made provision for that. But Jesus stops them and says, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. And then we see that as they walked away one by one, that the teachers of the law were all guilty of sin. You see, we've all been caught in sin. And how do we want to be dealt with? Do we want to be condemned by others? Or would we like to be restored gently as Jesus did with this woman? Jesus was the only one there, the only one who had not sinned. And by his own words, the only one worthy enough to have stoned this woman. But instead, he encourages her to go and sin no more. That's what it means to restore somebody. You come alongside them, not condemning. You pray for them. You, you help them out. And you Go and sin no more. Let's, let's leave this life of sin. Let's get out of this that you're caught in. And 
And that's why Paul says, you who are led by the Spirit, restore such one, because that's what Jesus actually did. Paul had just written this church and told them what it looked like to be living by the Spirit back in the last chapter, and now he applies it. Since gentleness is included as a fruit of the Spirit, it would make sense that it would require a person who is full of the Spirit to be the one to do the restoring. And it's easy for someone walking in their flesh to, to be the one condemning and, and ostracizing that person. But Jesus commanded us to love one another, which would include having a desire to restore those caught in sin. And then Paul gives us this warning. Watch yourselves. May you also be tempted. The realization of our own vulnerability should present, prevent us from becoming self-righteous. In respect to the way we treat people who are caught in sin. Paul's warning is still relevant for us today just as it was 2,000 years ago. Any one of us could fall into sin. If you think you're strong, be careful that you don't fall. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 2, For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. It could be you or me the next time caught in sin. And how would we want to be treated? There should be no double standards in church. If God's mercy and grace and forgiveness is available to me as well as you, then why would I be treating one another differently? You've been saved by the same grace I've been saved with. You've been shown the same grace and mercy and love from God that I've been shown. So why do I treat you any differently than I would want to be treated? God is no respecters of persons, meaning I'm not somehow more deserving than you, but yet sometimes we do that. We feel more deserving. And, oh, I can't believe you fell for that. I can't believe you did that. No, that's not how we're supposed to do it. Gentleness in love, what it means to be walking by the Spirit. There but for the grace of God go I. We need to remember that. There but for the grace of God go I. Just because a guy stands behind a pulpit doesn't mean he's not vulnerable to giving in to temptation. The temptations in your life and my life are no different from your life and your life. We all face the same difficulties. We all face the same temptations. So as we look to restore those who have been caught into sin, remember, it could be one of us. It could be us next time. Verse 2, Paul continues. Carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says that we are to carry each other's burdens. In his letter to the church of Rome, he says it's our obligation. When he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This word carry means to bear or to endure something unpleasant or difficult. In this instance, we are to bear each other's Burdens, no matter how unpleasant or difficult. So what are these burdens? Just what we've been talking about. Uh, you know, it's, it's not he's not necessarily speaking of financial burdens or physical burdens. Because in James, we read, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. But in this passage, what Paul is speaking about in the context of this passage, Paul says we are to carry those things that drag us, the other people's temptations. 
We're, we're to come alongside them. Getting caught in sin, that's a burden we can carry for somebody. We can help them through that. That's what Paul's talking about when he says it's our obligation to bear with one another's failings. He's talking about brothers and sisters here. He's not talking about condoning sin. He's not talking about being okay with how they live in sin. He's talking about coming alongside that person and helping restore them to faith and family and fellowship and fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. I've heard it said before that the church is for sinners just as a hospital is for the sick. And the more I think about that, the more I realize that sometimes we expect our churches to be full of people who are sanctified and who have their lives together and who never sin and never deal with temptation. We kind of expect that, don't we? But the church is full of sinners. You want to know why? Because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all saved by the grace of God. The church is full of sinners, and the church is supposed to be a hospital. We're supposed to carry one another's burdens. We're supposed to come alongside people. If if not, we're being unbiblical. The Apostle John says that if we claim to be without sin, so if we say, oh, the church is perfect, we're all perfect people. John says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Our churches are full of sinners. And this is why Paul says it's necessary. It's our obligation to come alongside our brothers and sisters and carry their burdens. Why do alcoholics attend AA meetings? Well, aside from a court order, they might go to AA meetings to get help with their alcoholism. Why do you call a plumber? Why do you call a moving company? Why do you call a counselor to get help with a problem or a burden or a concern you have? So why is the church not the first place we go when we find ourselves caught in a sin? I'm going to go out on a limb here and take a guess. Is it because we've been felt judged and ostracized before or we're worried that we'll feel judged, condemned, and ostracized? The church should be the first place we run to because the church is full of people who should be able to sympathize with us and understand what we're going through. As people who walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our lives. As we seek to restore our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, in doing so, Paul says we fulfill the law of Christ. He specifically says the law of Christ to make a contrast. See, there were certain groups going around who were trying to oppress people with the Mosaic law, the law that God gave Moses. See, God gave the law to Moses so it would point out our sin and our need for a Savior. But they were still, after Jesus came, they were like, well, it's Jesus plus the law. You need to obey the law still. You need to be circumcised. You need this or that. But Obedience to the law is impossible. But Paul's distinction here shows that walking in the Spirit, we can fulfill the law of Christ. So there is a law that we can obey if we're walking in the Spirit. And what is this law of Christ? When asked, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of Christ. To love God and to love one another. How better could you love God and love your neighbor than by carrying burdens and doing so as unto the Lord? When we're doing something as unto the Lord, 
It shows our love for God. And likewise, when we carry one another's burdens, it shows our love for one another, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. And if we're doing so by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we won't get big-headed. We won't feel self-righteous. We won't be condemning. We won't be pushing people away. As, as Paul goes on to write about in verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each of us, or each one of us, should test our own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Paul says, if you think you're something when you're not, you're only deceiving yourselves. So what are your motives in everything you do? What drives us? What are our motives? Why do we come to church on Sunday morning? What's our motives for that? What are, what are our motives? Again, those burdens that you would carry for somebody else could be you, your own that you're looking at, hoping somebody comes alongside you next time. The Apostle John in 1 John 1.8 writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We are all susceptible. We are all vulnerable to the same temptations and sins as everyone else. And so Paul says to that, if you think you're something, take heed or warning, watch, because you've deceived yourself. None of us is greater. None of us is... None, none of us in this room can withstand temptation more than any other person in this room. We are all being chased by the devil and he's seeking to devour us and catch us. It's like this. Say your neighbor pulls up in the driveway with a brand new car this afternoon. Now some of you will be like, whew, thank God I don't have his car painted. But others of us would be like, you know, the dealerships are closed on Sunday. I'm just going to go meander through the parking lot of a dealership. You know, uh, not that I'm jealous, but, you know, a new car, that's a little bit of jealousy in us, isn't it? Or say this, the same neighbor this afternoon is being hauled off to jail for stealing that brand new car. There's something in us that says, oh, I can't believe they did that. I would never, never. I, at least I wouldn't be stupid enough to get caught doing it. We judge ourselves to be better than we are, don't we? We're all tempted to sin. Whether it's just jealousy, stealing, pride, we all face temptations to do wrong, to sin. Sometimes we are good and don't give in. Other times we give in. We're all human. We're all, we all have a sinful nature. This is why Paul says to test our own actions. We should examine our own deeds, examine our motives. What Paul is stressing here is personal responsibility. I am not answerable to God for the sins that you commit. Nor are you answerable to God for the sins that I commit, the temptations that I give into. Each of us will give a personal account to God one day for what we did with the time he gave us on this earth. So let's stop condemning one another. Let's stop comparing ourselves. Let's stop thinking self-righteously. Rather, let us test our own actions because we all have our own load to carry. Paul says we each should carry our own load. 
which sounds like a contradiction to what he just said about carrying one another's burdens. But back in verse 1 and 2, Paul was referring to temptations and being caught in a sin. Here, Paul is talking about how each of us are accountable. That's our load. We are accountable for the actions we do, the things we say, and all that. As believers, we are to love one another by helping them carry their burdens, their loads. But someday we will give account to God for our own actions. That is the load that we alone must carry. You know, I can't ask you on that day, hey, Wendy, can you come here? Can you, can you take this from me? No, it doesn't work that way. I can't, I can't say, but it was Barry's fault. Barry did that. I, I can't do that. I'm picking on you, Barry. I can't do that. We, we can't compare ourselves to anybody else on that day. That is our own load to carry. That's what he's talking about. That, that is the difference. The idea is that I'm the only one acceptable for myself, for the things I do and for the things I refuse to do. When God commands us to love and we refuse to love, we're going to get asked about that someday. Just, as, just like the sin. So verse 6, Paul adds, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. In the context of this passage, this is another way that Paul has found to say the laborer deserves his wages and that those who learn their lessons will reflect well on their instructor. If we are truly fulfilling the law of Christ, we will bring him glory. People won't be looking at us. We'll bring God the glory. If we are truly fulfilling the law of Christ, it will be evident. In the same way that if we're walking in the Spirit, there will be the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, whereas the acts of the flesh are obvious, Paul says. The evidence of those who are led by the Spirit will be seen by their love, their joy, their peace, their patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that brings God glory when we do that. It looks well on our master, on what we've read. When we fulfill the law of Christ, we are living as Jesus lived. And if the way that Jesus lived his life brought God the glory, which we read, the Bible says, then we too, if we live as Jesus did, will bring God glory with the way we live our lives. And that's the ultimate goal, right? As a believer, we want to give God the glory. We want God to be glorified in our lives. We want him to be happy with the way we live our lives and, and proud of us. You know, as, as, our, as we try to pre- impress our earthly father, we should so much more try to, try to uh, gain the acceptance. Well, we don't have to gain the acceptance, but to impress our Heavenly Father, to, to bring Him glory. So, but we have received instruction found in God's Word. So have we neglected it, or do we accept it? Do we let, it change our, do we let God's Word change our lives and lead us into this way of living? lead us into this, being led by the Spirit? Or do we neglect it and say, ah, I think I know better? Which is why Paul, in verse 7, continues, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. How do we mock God? In this passage, By thinking we know better than he does. 
by thinking, well, that doesn't quite apply to me. Again, what do we do with the instructions found in God's Word? Because make no mistake, we will reap what we sow. This takes us back to uh, chapter 5, where Paul is talking about the outcome of the acts of the flesh as opposed to the outcome of the fruit of the Spirit. God said those who gratify the desires of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but have eternal life. If we think this doesn't apply to us, or if we think, I can get away with a little gratification of the flesh, we're not, we're not deceiving anybody but ourselves. God's Word is true, and we either stand upon God's Word as the truth or not. And God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. We sow according to the flesh. We will reap death and destruction. So according to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Destruction or eternal life, which one is it? There's no third option. Paul says that the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do what you want. You cannot have both. Paul says they're in contradiction to each other. They're at war with each other. Jesus tells us that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This has to do with how we live our lives day in and day out. This has to do with the choices we make day in and day out. If you're driving down the road, cutting people off, swerving in, through, in and out through traffic, and a guy pulls up and flips you off and, and yells at you and he's a jerk to you and cuts you off, what did you expect was going to happen by cutting everybody else off? Or let's say you went out drinking with the buddies last night and you drank too much and you can't wake up for work the next morning. Let me ask, what did you expect was going to happen? If you're standing around the water cooler talking about some coworkers, and then you come around a corner a little while later and hear them talking about you, God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. What did you expect was going to happen? You, you can't plant a watermelon seed and expect a sunflower to grow. You can't sow anger, jealousy, bitterness, and selfish ambition and expect the same, less than the same in return. Let's go a step in a more personal direction. What if you say, God never answers me? I never hear from God. Well, do you spend time in His Word and in prayer? And I don't mean just Sunday mornings or before meals. Because He promises us if we seek Him wholeheartedly, we will find Him. So again, to the person that says, I never hear from God, well, do you spend time in His Word? We will reap what we sow. Sow to good things, you'll reap good things. Sow to bad things, you'll reap bad things. That's what's going on here. If we sow to please our flesh, we will reap destruction. But God promises if we sow to please the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's hard, though. It's hard to do the right thing. Well, Paul addresses this in verse 9. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
Paul says, don't be disheartened. Don't get discouraged. Good things come to those who wait. Oh, wait, that's an old English proverb. That's not in the Bible. But it's, it's the thought that, that matters right there. Good things come to those who wait. But it is a fruit of the, a fruit of the Spirit is patience, right? God expects patience from us. As Christians, we're called to persevere, to hang in, to run the race with endurance in order to receive a prize. Peter tells us that prize or the a harvest is the salvation of our souls. So don't become weary in doing good. Don't think, well, I haven't gotten paid back for this. I've been good to everybody and nothing good has happened to me. We tend to do that, don't we? Bad things will still happen to us. We, the rain falls on the good and on the evil. Okay? So therefore, Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially other believers, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. Jesus, I love this, in John 13, 35 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then, history tells us that the early church grew and was known for what? For their love for one another. It's such a simple thing, yet it's one of the last things that we as a church are known for. Again, we're known for our superstar pastors, our massive campuses, our superstar worship teams and worship albums and stuff. We're always known for asking for money. Our churches are known for what we're against. And I know that doesn't please God. Because Paul has been warning us about this. God's desire is that we would be known by our love for one another. You want to know why? Because by, lo- by loving God and loving one another, that's what Jesus did. The Bible tells us that God is love. D- don't you think he expects his children to be loving? The Bible tells us that God is love and there's no better way to witness, no better way to point somebody to God than by loving them. Have you heard it said, I'm going to love them into the kingdom? We're going to love people into the kingdom of God. That's what we should be known for. And I know that, I'm I'm trying not to come down on anybody here. I know that a lot of us are really good at loving one another. But I think as a whole, the church in America, we could do better at this. What would happen if we were known by our love for one another rather than everything we're against? What would happen? What would people, what would happen? I believe that the church is the physical representation of the body of Christ. And if that's so, then we must love or else the church has become a representation of itself. If we are not loving, we are not reflecting God's love, we're reflecting ourselves. Now in verse 11, Paul says, see what large letters I used to write to you with my own hand. This could be his eyesight. Uh, Paul would usually use somebody else to write his letters, and then at the end he'd kind of sign them. This is kind of his signature at the end. Uh, Back in chapter 4, he tells the church that he came to them because of an illness, and then he said, 
I, I know you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me if you could have. So Paul definitely had something going on with his eyes. So that could be the large letters he's writing with, you know, so they know it's actually from Paul. But in verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Those who want to look good in the flesh or those who wish to gratify the desires of the flesh, those are the ones trying to compel us to, that it's Jesus plus something else. Those are the ones trying to compel us to become, oh, be this way so you're not certain. You can't say that from the pulpit or else you know, the government's going to come after you. We know in Canada there's cases where pastors are being taken and, and speakers are being taken to re-education camps because of what they have said. And so, well, I don't want to be persecuted, so I can't say this. I can't, I can't call sin a sin. Paul says, if you're doing that, you're only going to be drowned in that because you can't keep up with that. Back in chapter 2, Paul had to confront Peter for being hypocritical and acting one way around the Jews and another way around the Gentiles, all because Peter was kind of worried about what they would think of him. But this is different. They were being persecuted because they weren't circumcised. They, weren't, they didn't have an outward expression, uh, the Old Testament outward expression of their faith. You see, there were still people that were like, okay, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. You can have your Jesus, but you still need to follow these dietary requirements. Or you can have Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. Or you can have Jesus, but you need to... We still have these kind of people today, don't we? People that use their line of thinking to keep other people from fellowship. Ultimately, keep other people from God. Because they think, well, you must dress a certain way in order to come to church. Or you must act a certain way. Or you must read the King James only. Because if you don't read from the King James only, then you're not really a Christian. Or you're not really, that's not the true one. But I get into these uh, discussions all the time. You know, uh, oh, you're supposed to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. So you're not a true Christian. All that does is hinders people from walking with God. And that's what Peter is warning them from. Peter or Paul's warning them from. Uh, Paul says, avoid these people. Don't get into arguments with them. They're trying to do this so they look good. Jesus promises rest for the weary. Not, I'll give you rest if you read this version of the Bible. I'll give you rest if you worship on Saturday. I'll give you rest. No. Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the only one who saves us. We are not saved by outward looks. We are not saved by getting our lives together. Nothing. God's love is for us. He showed us his love by sending Jesus to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. And as forgiven believers, he calls us to love one another. That doesn't mean oppressing people with how we think they should be, how we think they should act what they should wear, what they should, when they should worship. Paul says that those who think that it's Jesus plus circumcision 
or Jesus plus the law, don't even actually keep the law themselves. He says they're doing it for show. Verse 14, may I never boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, Paul says. This world system, the world's values, its beliefs, its morals, everything that's contrary to God is what Paul's saying. And before Jesus saved us, we were slaves to the world system. And Paul says, I have been, because of the cross of Christ, I have been crucified. I've died to that old way. I'm no longer held to that because I've died to that. It doesn't hold me anymore. Paul says, I've got nothing to boast in except while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. That's our boast. While we were in opposition and rebellion to God, he sent Jesus to die for us. Uh, Isaac Watts, he wrote a hymn, said it better than, ever I, better than I ever could. He wrote, uh, When I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose such rich a crown? His dying crimson like a rose, like a robe spread over his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so de divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I love that. I'm dead to the world. The world's dead to me. I'm no longer held by that. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's not that we strive to keep the law of Christ as an obligation, but that we keep the law of Christ as a result of being saved. Paul goes on to say that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. In other words, outward appearances are not always indicative of an inward change. Because outward appearances can be deceiving. I can walk like a Christian. I can talk like a Christian. I can act like a Christian. But if I don't show the fruit of the Spirit in love, joy, peace, patience, and all that, where's the fruit? I'm not a Christian. If there's no fruit in my life, I'm not a Christian. The distinction Paul is making here is, what should characterize us as a Christian should be our love for one another and not whether or not we adhere to religious traditions. Because we can look the part, but without love, we're ultimately only fooling ourselves, Paul says. This is why Jesus said, you can know a tree by its fruit, and so you will know my followers by their fruit. See, what counts is whether or not... See, what counts is whether or not we are a new creation. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. We must be a new creation. 
We can't walk in the fruit of the Spirit on our own. We need to be made new. We need to die to the world, die to self. And this proof of being born again and becoming a new creation is walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the proof that we are saved. You know, there's times where we as pastors will be counseling or talking to somebody and, well, I think my husband's saved. Well, is there any fruit? I think my son or my daughter is saved. I think my parents, is there any fruit? Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit. The whole point of salvation is that we realize we are sinners, that we sin against God and we are in rebellion to Him, and that our sin is our master. And now once that realization hits and we desire a new master, one who promises a rest from the burden and the guilt of sin, one who promises new life and peace with God, so we pray that Jesus would become our new master. We've all said the prayer, Lord, come into my life, Lord, lead me, Lord, Lord make me new. You know, we've all prayed that. What we're praying is, Lord, I want you to be my master. I want to follow you, not sin. I want to follow you, not the world. And this is what Paul's saying. Those who follow after the world will reap destruction. And it will be evident by their fruit. Those who walk after Jesus will reap eternal life. And it will be evident by their fruit. Which leads us to what Paul writes next. In verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Peace and mercy. Apart from Jesus, we are enemies with God and destined for his wrath on our sin. But to all who follow this rule, rule Paul says, peace and mercy. To all who follow this rule or this principle, that outward appearances mean nothing, an inward change is required. Whether or not we're born again, means whether or not we're true Israel. Because Israel was God's people. He set them apart. If they followed his commands, obeyed his commands, they would be his people. Now, after Jesus, we are now, by faith, true Israel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 17, From now on, let, us, let, me let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let no one bother me or... Or trouble me on whether or not I'm a true believer, Paul says. I bear the marks of Jesus. You see, when a slave was purchased, they were branded, they were marked by their new master. Paul says clearly, I belong to Jesus. My marks proclaim to everyone who I am. What are these marks? They could have been physical. He could have... He could have been talking about being whipped and punished and all that. But if we keep in light of the passage, the marks that he carried were love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. Do we bear the marks of Jesus? Are we loving? This is my prayer for myself and for this church, that we would be marked or we would be characterized by our love for God and our love for one another. But sometimes we fail at this, don't we? Which is why Paul closes out this letter, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your spirit. Don't we all need Jesus' grace in our lives? When we're not living as we're, we should, when we're not loving as we should, 
when we're not following Jesus as we should, we need grace. For by grace it's been, you've been saved through faith. Not of your works, lest any of you should boast. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16 writes, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. And if that's good for me, it's good for me when I'm caught in sin. It's good for you. It's good for you when you're caught in sin. So let's carry one another's burdens. If a brother or sister is caught in sin, you who walk by the Spirit should restore them in gentleness, watching that you do not also get yourself caught up in the same sin. We all have weaknesses. We all have times where we stumble, where we fall, where we fail. But every one of us can do our part to fulfill the law of Christ by loving one another. When we're caught in sin, we need Jesus' grace and mercy. I need Jesus' grace and mercy when I'm caught in sin. You need Jesus' grace and mercy when you're caught in sin. We don't need condemnation from a brother or sister. We need love from a brother or sister. We're a family. We're a body. We're, we're friends. We worship the same God together. So those who are led by the Spirit, should seek restoration knowing that it could have easily been you or me in that situation. And how would we want to be treated if we were in that situation? Jesus left us three commands. Love God, love your neighbor, and then go and make disciples. And repeat, the, repeat it. It's a, it's a circle. We just keep repeating it. And so if we're loving God and we're loving others, people will see, people will notice. And that's how we make disciples. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, ne next week, I'm not sure if we're going into Ephesians or not, but uh, read ahead because uh, the book of Ephesians is just more instruction for the church, right? So let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, we come to your throne seeking grace and mercy when we've fallen into sin. Lord, we pray that you would forgive each and every one of us for those areas in our life that we've found ourselves caught in a sin. Lord, when we've given into temptation, Lord. And Lord, forgive us for those times where we have not come around a brother or sister to help restore them. Lord, we know you command that. And so, Lord, <coughs> forgive us for those times where we have not done as you've commanded. Lord, we need your grace and mercy. And Lord, we understand that you give us your grace and mercy out of your love. So may we as a church be showing your love to, to those around us, to our neighbors, to those around the, in this vicinity, in this neighborhood, in this city. Lord, may this church be known by our love for you and our love for one another, Lord. Lord, that's all we want to do. We want to glorify you with our lives by loving you and loving one another, Lord. We just pray that we can do that more and more each day. Pray you give us opportunities to show love, to carry one another's burdens, Lord. We pray for opportunities to come alongside one another. We pray for those that are caught in sin, Lord. I pray for any brother and sister here that is struggling with a sin or is caught in a sin that they can't feel like they can get out of. 
Lord, I pray that we could come alongside of them to help them in that area. Lord, we give this all to you. We pray that you would speak into our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray.